Uh, go ahead and uh, turn to Colossians 1, Colossians chapter 1. We'll finish up the message last week, uh, the message titled, Who is Jesus? And in Colossians 1 last week, we looked at, uh, we looked at verses 15 to 20. And today, uh, I want to concentrate on verses 21 to 23. All right, it'll be fairly short. I think it will be fairly short. I don't know. The, again, the title is, Who is Jesus? Part 2. And, you know, as Marty, Marty's mentioned it a couple of times, but I, I just don't know that there's really a more important subject that we could be looking at. Not only today, but, but each and every Sunday, each and every time we gather together to, to, to look at and to focus all of our attention on Christ. That's, that's, that's our purpose. And so um, let's go ahead. We're, we're going to just jump right in and read the text. So if y'all go ahead and stand up. I know we've been standing a lot this morning, but uh, real quick, just a couple of verses. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, we'll start in, in, in verse 21. Paul writes, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for another opportunity to stand and to proclaim and to preach your holy and perfect word. And Lord, I just ask you right now to, to convict me if I ever take this for granted. Lord, uh, I just uh, thank you for, for the wonderful opportunity that you have given me. And, uh, and Lord, I just thank you for everyone who has come here into this house today. Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts. And I pray that you would uh, illuminate them to the truth of your scripture as we look down through the words of Paul this morning. Lord, I, I pray that we clearly see exactly who Jesus is. Christ is, and so as we go out, we're able to to uh, cling to Him uh, even tighter than we ever have. So, Lord, I just pray those things this morning. I ask you to uh, bless this time now in the holy, righteous, and glorious name of Christ. Amen. All right. So, so this world we live in, uh, we live in a world today that, uh, uh, as I look this up, we uh, I don't know how accurate uh, this all is. I mean, Google is Google, and so. I don't really know if this is 100% accurate, but uh, we, we have about 7.7 uh, .7 billion people in the world currently. So close to 8 billion people live in, in the world today. And, and every day on the planet, around 350,000 people are born. Every single day. So that's about 150 million people a year that, that's born. And so it's estimated, and again, I don't know how accurate this is, but it's estimated that in the whole history of the earth, in the whole history of, of our planet, there's been around um, 100 billion people who have lived. People have lived normal, quiet lives, right? Pretty quiet, pretty mundane lives, the majority of those people. We have very few that have made a, a real small effect and impact on the world, and even fewer than that have gone down in the records of human history. But out of all of the people who have ever lived in the history of the world, out of all of the hundred-some-odd billion people that have ever entered the human race, there can only be one that's ever, that can be considered the greatest. There can only be one 
human in history other than this one has attracted more attention. No other human in history has garnered more devotion. No other human in history has, has been subject to more opposition and criticism or become the object of more worship than our Lord Jesus Christ. He lived 2,000 years ago in a small area in Israel, and uh, he was born to relatively unknown parents. He lived a very ordinary life, and, and yet no one has affected the human race like Jesus. He never wrote a book, any other person in the history of the world. It doesn't even come close. He never raised an army, but yet millions have marched in his army, and millions have given their lives in his name. And except for one small period of his childhood, his travel was limited to an area uh, about the size of from here to Nashville. Very small area. But today his influence is global and reaches around the world. He never spoke to, spoke to more than a few thousand people at any given time, but his words have been translated into over a thousand languages. He had no formal education, but today there are thousands of schools and universities and seminaries that are founded on his name. He never painted a picture that we know of. He never wrote a song or a poem, but today he's the subject of more paintings and the subject of more songs than any man who's ever entered the human race. It's absolutely impossible to overestimate the influence and the impact of the one single life that was lived by Jesus Christ. None of us here can afford to, to, to even be one or two degrees off on exactly who Jesus is. In ignorance, to be to be off and to be wrong about who Jesus is. To be wrong about who Jesus is would be to live in darkness. It's really not important that, that we know anybody else in our life. It's not important that, that we have uh, anybody else in our life. If we don't know Jesus, we don't know anything. The entire Christian life is growth and grace and knowledge of Jesus. So eternal life is, is to know him. Right. So we have a purpose. Right. And that purpose is that as, as he's locked up in jail in Rome, he's writing this and he gets word back to him that that there have been false teaching. We talked about that a little bit last week, but false teaching had come into the church and, 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 and the, the false teaching was regarding the, the person and work of Jesus. And so you got to deal with it. You know, when false teaching comes in, you have to deal with it head on or you'll never recover from it. And so Paul knows that, that if you're wrong in regards to, to who Jesus is, and if you're wrong in regards to the person and work of Jesus, then everything else about your life will be in your life is going to be right. And so right here in the first chapter of Colossians, Paul hammers this point of the person and work of Jesus. And, and look, this is good stuff in these verses that we just read. We're not going to find it anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, we're not going to find another area that's so concentrated when it comes to, and so sound when it comes to, to knowing who Jesus really is. Uh, so, so if a Jehovah's Witness ever comes knocking on your door, or if you ever get encountered by a Mormon or, or someone like that, this Scripture, these set of verses, you can take them to this Scripture who Jesus Christ is. Last week we looked at verses 15 to 20. And what we saw last week, we saw five words that describe Jesus from those verses. Today, we're going to look at the fifth word, all right? There are five words that, that I said last week would describe who Jesus is to us in this first chapter of Colossians. We looked at four words last week. We saw first that in verse 15 that he's God. He is God. The text says he is the image of the invisible God. And so when you, when you look at Jesus, you see everything that God is. 
then that can only be said of the one. He's creator. Verse 16 says, for by him all things were created. And at the end of that verse, it says, all things have been created through him and for him. So everything in the universe, absolutely everything in this entire world has been spoken out of his mouth, right? And so all things exist by the, by the will of Jesus. All things. He created everything out of nothing. And then the third thing we saw in verse 17 is he is sustainer. So everything that he created, everything that he spoke from nothing, he also maintains and upholds and oversees and governs and directs. We see in verse 17, it says, in him all things hold together. So if it weren't for Jesus, if it weren't for him, everything would just fall apart, right? Everything would fall apart. Nothing would be, uh, nothing would be held together. Everything would unravel. Everything would come apart. Nothing would hold together. There'd be no purpose for any of our lives. The truth of the matter is, if Jesus didn't hold all things together, there would be no purpose for any of our lives. There'd be no aim. We'd be reduced to living in a world of luck and chance and random occurrence and all that. Right? There would be no purpose for our lives. But see, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so he's upholding all things together. Fourth thing we saw is that uh, he is Lord. We saw that in verses 18 to 20. Saw that he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. All of those statements are, are statements of lordship. And that through his death, we, we read in verse 20, that he's reconciled all things to himself. That doesn't mean that he's savingly reconciled all things to himself. Um, we'll get to that and talk a little bit about that today. But uh, uh, what, 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 uh, verse 20, it says that, it, that he's reconciled all things into a position of accountability to him. Meaning that every knee will bow, meaning every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And he's brought all things into submission under his feet. And that's what verse 20 is saying. So it, it would be, um, if we take it in a redemptive way, if we take what that is saying in a redemptive way, then we're universalists, right? We can't say that he has redemptively and savingly reconciled all things to himself. Uh, but but, but um, that's all that has been created, he's brought all of it under, into subjection to him. So everything is subjected to Christ, even the devil. Everything is subjected to his authority. All right? And so now, on the basis of the foundation that we laid last week, we come to verses 21 to 23, and the fifth word that describes, and I think I mentioned this at the end of the end of the sermon last week. The fifth word that uh, that we're going to look at today is Savior. It's the final word, and there, it's really the result of the four words that we looked at last week. Because nobody can be Savior if he's not Creator, if he's not Sustainer, and if he's not Lord, then then he's not Savior. And any other Savior is a, is is just an imposter. There's only one who can be Savior, and it's the one who's God, who's created all things, who maintains all things, and who is Lord over all. The one alone, that one alone is qualified to reconcile sinners to a holy God. So we're going to look at these verses, and I'm going to give you three points uh, under, this, under this heading of Savior, three points that, uh, that I want you to see when it comes to Jesus as Savior. So here's the first one, our past alienation. Verse, 20, uh, verse 21 says, and although you were formerly, and we stop right there, although you were formerly, the you here refers to believers, right? Those in the church, believers, that's who he's talking to. And this is past tense. There are, there are, that's what we could call our, uh, when you're a believer, 
And, and when you look at this text, he says you were formerly. Those, those when he's talking about, we could, talk, we could call those our before Christ days, our BC days. A believer's life is, is really written in two sections. You've, you've got before Christ and you've alienated. It refers to, to our status before God. We, we were hostile in mind. That refers, uh, as, as the text continues on, we were hostile in mind. That refers to our attitude toward God. So alienated, that's our status before God. Hostile in mind is our attitude toward God and engaged in evil deeds. That refers to our actions before God. And that's the total package right there. It really is. Everything about who we were before Jesus fits right into this, into this text, into this verse. It's our status, our attitude, and our actions, how desperately we need to be reconciled to God in a salvational way. We need to be reconciled to God in a salvational way. So let's look at these real quick. Alienated. Uh, and, and this is just a setup for reconciliation. All right. Alienation is the, is the opposite of reconciliation. It's the exact opposite of it. The only people who need to be reconciled are those who are alienated. And alienated means, uh, the word means to be estranged from. All right, it means to be separated from, to be cut off from. To cut off from what? That's the object of the text. So, so to be cut off, to be, to be separated from God. Everyone born into this world, understand this, and I know you know this, but everybody born into this world is not born into a relationship with God. We're not born into a covenantal relationship with God. Everybody born in the world is born alienated from God. Right? We're, we're born cut off and detached and removed from God. That's why everybody needs to be born again, right, spiritually. Because after your first, because with your first birth, 12 says you were at that time separate from God, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, you were formerly far off. It's Ephesians 2.12. And so then our attitude, it says we were hostile in mind, hostile in mind. And so that's who we are at our, at our very core, right? Naturally speaking, as unbelievers born, uh, when we're naturally born, that's who we are. We're hostile in mind at our core. We aren't neutral, right? We don't have one foot in. Every Christian for the entirety of their existence before they become a Christian are hostile in mind toward God. And, and let me just say this, and, and you can... You can um, you can believe me, you can like it, you can hate it, but it's the truth. All unbelievers hate God. Every unbeliever hates God. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no, well, he's all right, you know. There's, there's, no, there's none of that. You absolutely hate God as an unbeliever. And we hated God. We hated everything about him. We hated his rules. We hated everything about what he stood for, everything about God. Every unbeliever hates God. And you can say, no, they don't. They don't. They, they love Christmas, right? They love Easter. Yeah, but they hate, they, they hate any moral restraint that's on their lives, right? They hate God. So hostile in mind. John 3.20 says, everyone who does evil... That covers the entire field. Everyone who does evil, that's all of us, right? Everyone who does evil, hate deeds will be exposed. So that's the state of every lost person. And look, all of this is the backdrop to set up what he's going to tell us in the next verse. So we were alienated. We were hostile in mind toward God. And then here's the final one. We were engaged in evil deeds. 
Nobody has to teach us to be sinners, right? Nobody has to teach us to be sinners. Nobody had to teach us how to be engaged in evil. We were birthed into the world with a corrupt sin nature, and we had an inclination toward doing evil, and we did it to the, we were the best sinners we could possibly be, right? We, there were, we, we tried every, as hard as we could to, to be the best sinners that we possibly could be. That's what Paul's saying here. Evil deeds flow out of a hostile mind, right? Because we're hostile in mind, it causes us to do evil. That summarizes our past alienation. But um, let, me, let me tell you this too. It's, it's, not that just, it's not just that we were at enmity with God. Let me tell you something even worse than that. Even worse than our being at enmity with, with God, God was at Because he's holy. He's a holy God. And he can't look at evil with approval. God is a holy God. God hates sin. And listen to me. God hates sinners who are outside of Christ. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, but, but you know, I'm going to be honest with you when I say it, and I know it, it, we, we like to cling to the, the traditional sayings that you've heard as you grow up, God hates the sinner, or God hates the sin, but not the sinner. No, Scripture says God hates the sinner outside of Christ. If you are outside of Christ, God hates you, plain and simple. Psalm 5, 5, or Proverbs 5, 5 says that you hate, you hate all who do iniquity, Verse 6 says, the Lord abhors the man, not just the deed, not just the act, but the man, the person, the individual of bloodshed and deceit. Psalm 11, 5 says, the one who loves violence, his, capital H, his soul hates. Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Yeah. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. So how do you reconcile then? This is an honest question. It's an honest question, and, and I've gotten it before. How do you reconcile Psalm 5, Psalm 5, with John 3.16? How do you do it? How do you reconcile those two? How do you reconcile that God hates sinners and God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? And there's a lot to that answer. But first of all, I, I would point you to Romans nine thirteen. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Eternally, redemptively, savingly, there is discrimination in the saving love of God. There is discrimination in the saving love of God. So before you came to Christ, before you came to Christ, when you were an unbeliever, God hated your sin. And God had a holy and pure hatred of your contaminated and defiled life. All right? Before we came to Christ, the love of God is found exclusively in Christ. The love of God is exclusive, redemptive love of God outside of Christ. So if you're an unbeliever, there's no Christ in you, right? There's nothing in you that motivates God to love you until you are his child. So not only do we need to be reconciled to God, but if he's going to come into to a relationship with us, there's also going to be reconciliation from his side as well. But there's no love of God redemptively outside of Christ. So that moves us to our next point. Is, uh, that was our past alienation. Our next point is our present reconciliation. Our present reconciliation. Verse 22 sp speaks about the change in our lives. Verse 22. Verse 22. 
But now he's reconciled us, or reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, blameless before him. So, so let's break it apart this way. Let's, let's look at the who, what, when, where, how, and why of this, of this verse. That's going to be our headings for, for verse 22. Who, what, where, how, why. So let's start with the who. Yet now he has reconciled you. So who's the he? Jesus. Jesus is the he. He's the reconciler. Can't reconcile ourselves, right? We don't have the power to reconcile ourselves. We can't meet God halfway. We can't contribute anything to our salvation but the, but the sin that needs to be forgiven, right? That's the only contribution we have. So the who is Jesus. He's the reconciler. There's only one way that a sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God, and that's by the person and work of Jesus. There's, there's no other reconciler. There's no other way to be reconciled. The, the one God, there's only one God, there's only one mediator between God and man. Uh, between God and man. So, so a reconciler is, is a mediator, right? That, that's, that's what a reconciler is. It's the one who brings two parties together. All right? And so that leads to the what? So, so the what is he has now reconciled you. And this word, consider what it, what it means. It means. It means literally to change. Reconcile means to change. It means to the status of the relationship of two parties that are divided, right? Their backs are turned toward each other, right? There's, there's two people who have issues with one another. And to be reconciled, removal of the alienation. Reconciliation means that there's removal of the enmity between God and the sinner and the establishment of a new relationship. And in that new relationship is peace and acceptance and friendship between the two. And it's all on the basis of the reconciler, right? It's not on the basis of, 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 of one of the other parties. It's on the basis of the reconciler. Those who were at war with God were once at war with God are brought into a loving relationship now with God on the basis of the reconciler. They've been changed from hating all right, so that's, that's the what, the who and the what. Now here's the where. Where did the reconciliation take place? Well, look at the next four words in the text. In his fleshly body. Well, that's where, that's where the reconciliation happens, right? There's a reason it doesn't say the cross, right? There's a reason that's not said here. And, and if you go back into the context that we've already talked about, uh, the false teachers, what Paul is doing here is, is he's, he's addressing the false teaching in the church right now, all right? And this, this right here is this, what he says in his fleshly body is unique to the false teachers that he's been talking about. Those false teachers were, were warning uh, that he, he was warning against them and what they had been teaching because what they were teaching, I told you last week, was something that was early form of Gnosticism. It was a very early form of Gnosticism and, and there, was, there was a form of uh, Gnosticism called docetic Gnosticism, docetic. And, uh, and that means appearing or, or to see or to appear. And so the, this version of Gnosticism said that everything that's physical is evil, right? And the only good are the things that are spiritual. Total denial of the incarnation. There was a total denial of the incarnation of Jesus. Is Jesus being hu hu uh, human? There was a complete and total denial of that. And so uh, God, they, they would say God could never become man. God could never take on a human body because all that's physical is evil, right? That's what they taught in this Gnostic system. So they denied the, the deity of Jesus, but they also denied the, the humanity of Christ. And what you were left with was a spirit being, right? That's what you were left with was a spiritual or a ghost of a person. And Paul is, is beating that out here. He's, he's teaching and beating that belief system. He's saying that, that if you deny the incarnation, you're in trouble, 
If you deny the incarnation, you're in trouble because the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. Well, if Jesus is to die for your sins, he had to be a human because God can't die, right? God can't die. So he had to take the form of a human and become a man if he was going to die. So if you've got, if you have no incarnation, you have no crucifixion. And if you have no crucifixion, you have no reconciliation. All right. So, so the where is in his fleshly body. When Jesus, and as he was lifted on the cross, nailed to the cross, listen, when he was put and nailed on the cross and lifted up on the cross, our sins were transferred to Christ. Our sins were transferred to him and the father's wrath fell on him. The wrath of God that's due us, that's meant for us, was placed on the perfect son of God. He took every bit of the holy wrath of God. And listen, as he took that wrath, it's as if he took in one hand a holy God and sinful man, and he reconciled us and brought us together. That's what his sacrifice did. He removed the enmity between God the Father and sinful man. He removed it because in the middle, he was the great reconciler. And in his death, he satisfied the righteous anger of God. And so now there's no wrath towards us. If we're believers, there's no wrath towards us. He appeased it perfectly, and he brought us out of our sin, and he only brought us out of our sin through his blood. Right? That's the where in his fleshly body. And here's the fourth one. Here's, here's the how. And the next two words, and, and I kind of almost got ahead of myself here, but uh, the next two words, uh, through death. Death is the key word here. So it wasn't enough that Jesus came. It wasn't enough that Jesus came to earth. It wasn't enough that, that he lived among us, right? It wasn't enough that he, that he performed miracles or that he raised the dead or he, he made blind people see or he healed the sick. That wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that he spoke as no man had ever spoken before him. It wasn't enough for my salvation or your salvation that he even revealed God to us. He had to die. If we're ever going to be reconciled to God, Jesus had to die. Because the wages of sin is death, right? The wages of sin is death. So it's what he says. The day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. That's what he said. If Jesus is going to stand in my place, he had to die because the death penalty had been put on my head. God had put the death penalty on my head, on your head, on every person that's ever lived because we're sinners, right? We're born cursed. Text, or scripture says, because the soul that sins, it shall surely die. You think God meant that? When God said that you will surely die, the soul that sins shall surely die. The, the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. You think God meant it? You think he meant what he said? So for Jesus to reconcile me to God, he had to die because the scripture says also because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Without the, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. First Peter 3.18, Christ died for our sin. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and he was buried. All right? What, what's the emphasis on the burial for? Why, why do, they, do we emphasize the burial? Because he really died. Right? You don't bury somebody that's alive. You don't bury somebody that's half dead. Right. He really, truly, fully died. He wasn't just unconscious. He didn't actually he, he actually died. And, and the reason that we know he actually died is because they buried him. Right. And that there's a finality in his death. There's a, fi a 
final finality in his death. When he was on the cross, what did he holler out? It's finished. There's finality in the death of Jesus. So that means that reconciliation has been accomplished. Reconciliation has been accomplished. There's a sufficiency in that, right? There's a sufficiency there. There's nothing for us to add to reconciliation. There's nothing we can do to add to it. Think of how exclusive it is. Think of how exclusive that is. There's no other reconciliation that's going to make me right with God. No other. It's eternal. Think how eternal it is. Meaning once I'm reconciled, I can't be unreconciled. Right? I can't, I'll never be alienated from him again once I've been reconciled. So that's the how. Now let's look at the why. Look at the middle of verse 22. Why does it say Jesus died? In order to present you before him. In order to present you before him. Now the him here refers to God the Father. And the presentation is, so whether you, whether you arrive in heaven by death or it's the second coming that happens before you arrive there, it's an official presentation in front of and before God the Father. And each and every one of us in this room will be presented before God the Father. None of us, when we die, will be able to crawl up in our grave and hide from God the Father. We're not going to be able to do it. We will all stand before him. There's going to be a presentation of every one of us before God the Father. Now, here's the glory in the gospel. This is the good news here. And this is as good as it gets. It's not, it's not any better than this. Look, we were hostile in mind. We are engaged in evil deeds because of the, and solely because of the work of Jesus on the cross, dying in our place. Now he's going to pre- present unclean, foul, detestable sinners. He'll present us to God the Father. And look at the words. And this is the total opposite of what we just read in verse 21. Alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Look at, look, look at what he says. And this is a complete, this is just a change, a complete total change. He'll present us to God the Father. There's power in the blood of Jesus. That gives me goosebumps. I'm, I'm telling you. Well, go ahead, clap. Clap for Jesus. <laughs> Do you, I mean, I mean... Is there not power in the death of Christ? There's no bigger change than that right now, right, right there in Scripture. There's no bigger change than we were hostile in mind, alienated from God, hostile toward God, engaged in evil deeds, and now because of Christ dying in our place, he will present us one day before God, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Holy means to be clean from all defilement. It means to be clean from all impurities and to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So without that, we'll be, we, when we're presented with, before God the Father, we would be rejected, right? Without the, without the cleaning, without that, we would, be, um, we would be rejected when we were presented before God the Father. We'd be turned away. We'd be condemned to hell. We'd be sentenced there for all of eternity if it weren't for Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus, if, weren't, if he didn't present us pure and spotless and blameless because of his blood, we would be rejected. Now, that's reconciliation. The next word, uh, blameless, there means without moral blemish. So that means there's no liabilities on my side. No liabilities. I'm blameless. Then beyond reproach. You know what that means? 
beyond reproach. You know what that means? That means that nobody can bring a charge against us. Once we've been cleaned by the blood of Jesus, nobody can bring a charge against us in heaven. Let me tell you, he's accusing us every day. Romans 8.33 says, though, who will bring a charge against God's elect? So God's the one who justifies. He's the one who, who also condemns, right? God's the one who justifies. He's the one who condemns. So when we've been cleared of all charges, we're freed from all accusations. We're clean. We're clear. God says, God says, Scripture says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Behold the Lamb of God. So the work of reconciliation took place when? When Jesus died, but when we were also enemies of God. When we were enemies of God, the work of reconciliation took place. When we were hostile toward God, when we were evil in our, when our deeds were evil, Jesus, by the power of his death on the cross, radically changed our status before God. And it's all by our faith in Christ, by our trusting in Christ. All right, so let's look at the last point. Here's our final one the verse tw- in verse 23. This is our assurance. This, 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 this verse answers questions we've all had at times. Every one of us in this room uh, have had this question. How can I know if, reconciliation, if this reconciliation with God has taken place in my life? How can I know that my faith is saving faith? How do I know it's real? Right? We've all questioned it at times. Well, Paul tells us in verse 23. He starts off, he says, if. And that word if should grab our attention. You've been reconciled if, right? You're no longer in alienation if, right? This is real in your life. And if you died today, you would be presented holy and blameless and faultless before God if you continue in the faith. Now, the faith here, it's not your personal faith in Christ. This, this right here, the faith here that he's talking about is, refers to the Christian faith, right? It refers to the truth. It refers to, to the truth of the gospel. It refers to their truth about Jesus. So to continue in the faith speaks of, of endurance and perseverance, right? So, so if you're pulled away from the truth about the person and work of Christ, then that, if you're able to be pulled away from that, and so your faith would be a, a self-imposed faith if you're able to be pulled away from that. So it didn't come down, if you're able to be pulled away from the truth of, of, of the person and work of Christ, then, then it didn't come down from above because if you have true saving faith, you would continue in faith d- despite all of the, the false teachers that you might encounter. First John two nineteen says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not, that they are all not of us. Steve Lawson says this, I like this. He says, faith that fizzles out before the finish has a, flow, has a flaw from the first. Faith that fizzles out before the finish has a flaw from the first. It says it goes up like a rock and it comes down like a rock. It's not real. So it's not how you start the race, it's how you finish the race. And if you don't finish the race, you never really started, Right? Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. Well, firmly established means truth. So that's why it's important for us to constantly hear the gospel. Even as believers that have already been saved, we have to constantly hear the gospel over and over and over again. 
Right. That's why you don't hear me up here preaching about how to have a have, how to happy happy life or have your best life now or have a happy vacation. That's not faith. That's not the gospel. Right. It's too easy for for people to give the appearance of being religious, but not have faith. Then he says, and, and, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And not moved away from the hope of the gospel. That means not about Jesus. That you've heard, that, that you have heard was, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So the gospel, the gospel is for preaching, right? The gospel is for proclaiming. It can, be passed in, it can be passed on in a book like Scripture, the Bible. Uh, we can see the gospel there. It can be passed on in one-on-one witnessing, right? A, a parent to child, co-worker to co-worker, person to person. But ultimately, it's a message to be reclaimed. It's a message to be announced. It's a message to be taught. So reconciliation is the work of the Savior. It's the work of the Savior. He's, he, is, he is God. He is, he is creator, sustainer. He is Lord. And he alone and only him alone can reconcile us to the Father and present us as holy and blameless. And then in, in the 1860s, the government, the U.S. government, they, uh, they, they started this, this, this big old, that they decided to start um, was they want to connect the, connect the Atlantic coast with the Pacific coast by way of train, right? And this was a big monumental job, right? They no longer did they, what they were having to do at that time was they were having to sail around uh, South America. And so they didn't want to have to do that anymore. They didn't want to, have to sail down into Panama and crawl across with cargo and then come back up to California. So in 1862, uh, Congress passed an act to give millions on, upon millions of dollars to hire thousands upon thousands of people, most of them immigrants, as they started in Omaha, Nebraska, and in Sacramento, California. And there was this race on both sides to see who would win, uh, building their tracks. And so what they, they met in Utah. And when they met in Utah, there was this huge ceremony as they, as they uh, drove the last spike into the track. And when they drove that last spike in, the news the next day in the, in the newspaper was, it is finished. That was the headline. And it was telegraphed around the country that the, the two sides were now done, or the two sides were now one. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. That's exactly what happened in reconciliation. Exactly what happened. It was all the work from heaven, though. And there, there was no race like this to meet in the middle, right? We, we, were, we were actually, we were running away from God. As unbelievers, we were running away from God. It was all a work from heaven. We were at enmity with God. We were engaged in evil deeds. But God from heaven, he did all the work, and through his son Jesus at the cross, he reconciled us to himself. And then Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. And so there's no other way for us to be except through the death of Jesus Christ in his fleshly body. And so Jesus, our Savior, has initiated it all by himself through the shedding of his blood. And it was through that death in his body that, that he was taking, as I said earlier, he was taking holy God and sinful man and reconciling us together by our faith in Christ. So, so we were enemies. We were once enemies, but now we can be sons and daughters. I pray today that... Uh, that if you haven't, that you would truly believe on Jesus. Because if you don't, 
then all other ground that you would build the foundation of your life on is just sinking. It's temporary. It's sinking. It's sinking sand. We have to build our lives upon the permanent foundation of Christ. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you so much, Lord. I, I, I'm just amazed. When I, when I come to your word and when I look at what you have done and dig in and for me, I'm astonished, to be honest with you. While I was a sinner, while I was your enemy, while I was hating you, you were finding a way to reconcile me to you. While I was alienated, you had already accomplished the work of reconciliation. While I was hostile, engaged in evil deeds, you'd already built a bridge. You'd already built a bridge to the cross of Jesus. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that all of us here today understand right here in this moment, at this specific time in our lives, we understand what Jesus has done for us. We understand and we're, we're amazed at what Jesus has done. We get, we, we, we're refreshed in our view of who Jesus Christ is. Lord, Lord I, I just pray that, that we're not unmoved by this. I pray that no one here is untouched by this. I, I pray that we go out of here today with, with just pure excitement about who Jesus Christ is. I pray that we, we, we walk out of these doors today with a renewed vigor to share Jesus with everybody we come across. When we walk into Walmart, when we walk into the grocery store, when we walk into to, to a gas station, we look around and we say, who can I share Christ with? And we realize everybody that's standing there. God, I pray that we do that. I pray that we would, we would keep in mind and we would keep it on the forefront of our mind that there's no love of God without Jesus Christ. Everybody needs Jesus. And so, God, I pray that we would have that renewed energy and vigor and excitement to, 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 to share Jesus, just like somebody shared with us one time. Someone loved us enough to share with us who we were outside of Christ, but what Christ has done for us. And I pray that we would, as the person who shared Jesus with us, loved us. I pray that, Lord, as we go, we go out today, Lord, and I, and I just pray that as we come to this time of invitation, if there be any amongst us that don't know Jesus, that they would, that they would get that right, that they would, they would come and, and call out upon the name of Christ because your word says the, all those who call upon the name of Christ shall be saved. I pray that we see that today, Lord. I pray that, that as we come to the table this today, as we come to, uh, to, to, uh, to dine at your table, Lord, that we would do so with clean hearts and pure hearts that we have dealt with all that is in our lives this week that we would come to the table clean and pure today. Lord, we pray these things now in the holy and the righteous and beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody says...